Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. When we look at some of the advances in, you know, this amazing ag tech in the U.S. or EU or Israel, which is a hotspot for that, it's really designed for just large-scale commercial farms. I mean, it's a, in, in this, the user persona of a small farmer or even a medium farmer in, say, Latin America, in, and compared to Africa, they're all just wildly different. And so I think that's where there's like a pretty big dissonance, right? Like the technology is there, but how you develop the economics to serve it, the data granularity you need versus what you have, like all of that has to be kind of fundamentally different. Um, so I think that's the crux and the challenge that, you know, entrepreneurs who are building for the emerging markets really have to step up to while kind of looking at, wow, look at what some of these ag tech, like what the Indigo can do in the U.S. How do we translate that in, in a meaningful way where the economics work? All right, Tim, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. Calling in all the way from Panama. I feel like I'm slowly but surely getting coverage uh, of folks across all seven continents in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'll do, do our best to help extend that. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, before we dive into some of the nitty gritty, why don't you just get us started with a little bit of a walkthrough of your journey to coming to the point where you are now, where you're investing in climate technologies. What were some of the pit stops along the way? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess if I'm going to start way back and then I'll catch up to the current. My dad was a uh, police officer, but then moonlighted with a variety of, of side hustles. I remember one of which was uh, rock and roll memorabilia mailing list and shop in Chicago. And so ever since my littlest days, I would be going to garage sales to buy stuff and then go to you know markets to sell records and stuff i feel like yeah just seeing him build his business and delight people and customers with what he was doing kind of instilled that uh <laughs> mindset of yeah i don't know how do you create value how do you use business to forge relationships nice just from early stage so i after college decided to jump in and join a startup in ecotourism in southeast asia eventually made my way into microfinance helping set up a housing microfinance institution in cambodia and then, you know, kind of got the bug and over the next coming years, launched or operated companies in a variety of different sectors around mainland Southeast Asia and East Africa. Um, and from there, I uh, jumped into venture capital, always with impact-focused funds out of Singapore, East Africa, um, investing across all of Southeast Asia, but primarily Myanmar, Vietnam, Cambodia, and then East Africa, Kenya, and Uganda. And so my journey in Mercedes-Benz Ventures really was, I was uh, living in Indonesia, uh, Mercedes-Benz Ventures just getting set up, looking for some way with kind of that mix of founder operator VC background um, and yeah, happened to fit the bill. Um, I was <laughs> excited to jump in that space. And I think, you know, originally Merscore Ventures didn't have a climate focus. Got it. It was always something that was like very close to kind of my heart, but it wasn't, you know, as we started making investments, we just increasingly saw the stresses and shocks that climate was imposing as well as potential opportunities in emerging markets where we were operating. And therefore, you know, this intrinsically became part of our thesis. And, you know, for me personally, just increasingly compelled that that's where I want to orient my career, oriented pretty much everything I'm doing. Uh, so yeah, that's in a nutshell. Nice. Well, yeah, I'm super excited to talk about, I mean, you've covered, you've spent time working in and investing in Asia, Africa, Central America. So definitely keen to dig into, you know, so much of the time I spend 
focused on the US and Europe. So excited to dig into all of that. But also wanted to ask, when did you actually make the transition to Mercy Corps Ventures? Yeah, that was in uh, September 2014. Um, Got it. Yeah, the best, uh, I was going to hike with the ambassador of the US and I was on top <laughs> of a volcano in Bali of all places. And I got this text message from uh, from Mike McCarg, my old, my old uh, boss, saying, like, hey, like, we want to offer you the job. And I was like, yes, like, yeah, best day ever. <laughs> And it makes sense that, you know, maybe there wasn't an explicit climate focus at the fund then, but since been an opportunity to build one up and certainly now we see all the tailwinds around it. Yeah. And digging into that a little bit more. So when you first joined Mercy Corps, how did they position kind of the investing they did? And we know that climate has been one of the things that's kind of been added to the skill set or the kind of focus over time, but how do you position it now? Yeah. So, I mean, as a little bit of context, Mercy Corps Ventures is essentially the uh, impact focused corporate venture capital fund of Mercy Corps, a global nonprofit operating in about 45 countries around the world. Most of Mercy Corps' work is split between humanitarian conflict response in you know, tough contexts like Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan. And then the other half is in economic development, ag, and climate. It's like really a lens we apply to everything we're doing now um, as a nonprofit. Right. So when we set up the fund back in 2014, 2015, we, our mandate was essentially, okay, you know, Mercy Corps has this huge global footprint, all these programs, these connections and trust with communities and land stewards, we have to look at, okay, with those people at the center, what are really the greatest opportunities and threats they face to their livelihoods um, in order to, you know, have agency and dignity over their features. And so we, you know, in designing the fund, we kind of looked across that paradigm as well as like where are we seeing technology-driven models that we think can kind of meet the scale of what's needed to, to make a dent in these systemic problems. Um, and so climate wasn't explicitly called out, but it was always this, it was always a major factor. And then Mercy Corps had been doing a tremendous amount of work in climate resilience um, across, you know, all these, uh, all the continents. Yeah. And so it really, we focused first on agriculture and financial inclusion. On agriculture, it was obvious from day one, the investments we're making. I mean, when, when you, you can't assess an ag company without thinking about climate risk. Yeah, that's pretty one for one overlap. Exactly. We saw companies like really coming up with innovative you know, ways of addressing this on their balance sheet and off and through partnerships. And it was really this interesting period of time back 24, 2015, 2016, 2017, when you started to have this rise of ag tech companies, you know, out of the global south, out of East Africa, out of Southeast Asia, that were explicitly developing technologies and models and financial services to help farmers mitigate, transfer risk, even like alter production, whatever it is. So it was really the right timing where we started to see that emerging from the global south. It's designed from and for the global south versus, you know, what we saw in the U.S. and Israel, which is fantastic in the EU, uh, but designed more for larger farms, of course, more commercial manufacturing. Yeah, yeah, I would love to dive into some some company examples, just ones in particular that stand out, whether from kind of the time when you were first starting to explore all this, or it can also be stuff that, you know, has more recently caught your attention. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I'll start with um, a few, I think, like, you know, pretty good uh, initial examples of this. So one of our earlier investments was a company called Pool Advisors out of East Africa, founded by two of really the vanguards of microinsurance uh, for agriculture in emerging markets, mm. uh, Rose and Thomas. And they're essentially providing uh, parametric weather, catastrophic weather insurance in emerging markets for farmers. They had originally been doing so leveraging or continue to do so leveraging 
proprietary technology on underwriting the risk, understanding basis risk, as well as um, just having really figured out the crux of all of it, what is the distribution and the pricing uh, of risk and the transfer risk and so forth. Uh, so Pula is you know, incredibly successful. I think they're underwriting around 10 to 15 million policies across uh, now a few continents. Um, and again, focus really on smallholder farmers. And yeah, I've had tremendous success, but also if you go to our website, we've done a number of kind of case studies and, and lessons learned over the years, but they've really explored all those different modalities of you know, how a farmer, which has very limited wallet share, can afford or trust an insurance policy. And what are the different ways to do that, either through government, through bundling it with inputs, direct sales. I mean, there's a variety of things they've tested out and I think really always been at the forefront. Interesting. Of, figure out that the crux of that problem, like how you distribute something that everybody generally agrees is really important, but nobody likes to buy insurance. And so like, how do you actually, especially, you know, farmers who have to make very, you know, challenging decisions around what risk they can accept and where they're putting their money. And so I think they've really packed away and, and found some degree of success. Yeah. Building that customer trust is a really interesting challenge in that case, because it's not just that, you know, insurance in general requires a certain level of trust. And obviously you want to do good by the customer, but so much is changing, whether it's with respect to the climate itself or the way that there's opportunities to get better data as earth observation data gets more accessible. So yeah, a lot of moving parts on that front. Absolutely. And I mean, again, I think the buck stops with the user experience in anything, but in agriculture in particular farmers. And so if a farmer buys a policy and, you know, the satellite uh, says his you know farmland wasn't harmed by a flood, but it was. <laughs> um, you know he'll he'll never trust the product again if he doesn't get that payout, right? Or what happens with that payout? Maybe the uh, insurance product is correct, but that payout takes sixty days to arrive or ninety days to arrive. Then right. that doesn't help the farmer. I mean, they can't wait that long, so they'll go into debt from you know loan shark or coyote or something. So it's it's complicated products like demands the highest degree of customer service, which I think a lot of people, you know, coming from the global north, they just assume you can kind of dump a product and people will be grateful for it or whatever it is. But like, I, I, don't, I think you really have to respect that uh, with these types of customers, users, producers, partners, they understand their needs. They expect very high standards and you can't just kind of call it in, you really have to put more focus on human center design and product design than, you know, in another type of context, potentially. Yeah, understood. You can only imagine requires a certain level of, uh, yeah, I mean, intimate understanding of the way that things work on the ground. Yeah, so that's cool advisors in the micro insurance portfolio. You know, we've made a number of uh, other investments outside of that. Um, you know, one area we're particularly interested in as of recent is looking at the carbon markets uh, as well as nature-based solutions. And, mm. you know, essentially our larger thesis is that, as we know from uh, the recent COP in Montreal, biodiversity is, is really kind of the next frontier of kind of the carbon markets and where we really need to come up with more global agreements on uh, how we're going to address the staggering biodiversity loss. Carbon is somewhat of a proxy for that, but imperfect. And so we... In, in support of biodiversity losses, how we incentivize and how we structure land use. Um, so when you look at, there's a report from 2015 that shows, I think if I remember off the top of my head, 53% of land in Africa is uh, severely degraded. Not only is this a problem for food systems, but it's uh, certainly a problem uh, for desertification, for um, how that continent's going to warm, all sorts of little ripple effects, right? Mm -hmm. And so... What we kind of look at when we see the carbon markets is one piece of that land use problem is, well, this is a tool that allows us to incentivize and finance uh, regenerative land use in these economies. 
problem to date is that essentially excludes a lot of uh, small land stewards from taking part in it uh, for a variety of different reasons. So we made an investment in a digital MRV solution that's powered by Web3 called Open Forest Protocol. And, you know, it's one of our kind of bets on the space of if we if these markets are to operate effectively and to really reach small land stewards, they're going to have to be more and more transparent. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to have tools that allow data to flow in from multiple different sources, farmers themselves, as well as others around them, perhaps like Kula, like I mentioned before, and then to be cross-validated by those who are approximates, as well as emerging technology, remote sensing, and other data processors. So I think what that looks like to us is you know, what are different types of investments like open forest protocol that essentially democratize access and make this more an inclusive market and hopefully make a dense in land degradation, you know, so that these communities can actually thrive. Yeah, that sounds super valuable. I mean, just last week or by the time this gets published, might be a month or so, but there were new studies and a lot of hoopla about, you know, past carbon credits from prevented deforestation or reforestation that hadn't actually delivered on the impact that was promised. And there's so much of a trust issue surrounding that both for folks that you know see large companies buying carbon credits to offset some of their emissions, and I imagine also for developers on the ground who want to develop projects but don't necessarily know if they're going to work with an organization that's crossed their T's and dot their I's, so to speak. So yeah, I mean, making more, making that measurement and verification more transparent and more accessible at the same time is definitely two powerful levers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one part of the puzzle, but it's an important part. And again, we take a long view. There's going to be a lot of different types of investments that are going to make this, you know, again, make the carbon markets more inclusive, more transparent. And this is one of them. We're excited about lots of different other types of models. Um, The key crux still remains the financing. Um, Like, how do you pre-finance this? But once again, like when we look at our wider thesis, our approach is we want to make a constellation of investments that hopefully have, you know, some opportunities for collaboration or some flywheel where they build upon each other and we see kind of the carbon markets is, is one piece of that alongside our other types of agriculture deals, which will you know inherently be kind of in a similar ecosystem. Right, that makes sense. Like both of the ones that we've talked about, you know, it's not apples to apples, but there's a lot of shared characteristics in terms of thinking about land use, making sure that folks that want to cultivate or tackle regenerative land use have an opportunity to do so and kind of the infrastructure to do it effectively. Absolutely, yeah. Right on. Um, well, let's zoom ahead to 2023, new year. What types of new stuff are you are you looking at in addition to all the stuff that you've already kind of built a solid understanding of over the past few years? Yeah, definitely. So, um, I mean, as a little bit of context for us, 2023 is a you know kind of inflection point from Risk Ventures. We have three different vehicles, um, and you know the reason I'll describe is so I can contextualize kind of what we're getting excited about. But you know, our first vehicle is our Evergreen Fund. Uh, that's what we're actually investing out of currently. We do anywhere from two to four deals um, a month. We have about, I believe, 47 companies in that vehicle, 47 investments. Got two it. different exits uh, focused on climate resilience and financial resilience. Uh, so what I've been describing today. Um, and yeah, typically pre-seed seed stage tickets uh, ranging from 100 to 300K as an entry point. Nice. So that's our current vehicle. Uh, we're in the process of launching Fund 2, which is our Resilient Future Fund. Uh, similar thesis, but you know, we'll be a $50 million fund. We aim to close in the next 12 to 18 months and actively developing pipeline from our first fund towards that end. And yeah, just really looking to accelerate kind of the work we're doing. Uh, then our third vehicle is our piloting vehicle, and those are grants designed to systematically test assumptions we have about the power and impact and commercial viability of 
climate and blockchain derivative technologies in emerging markets. So we're, we're looking to kind of provide grants to kind of give proof points and signals of, well, yeah, you know what? Using Web3 to create do radical transparency in carbon markets does lead to a premium price or whatever the question is. Sure. Uh, so I can describe that later, but those are our vehicles. And yeah. kind of when we look at, you know, we're not a typical fund manager because we also are part of, you know, Mercy Corps. But when we look at 2023, I'd say a few different areas we're really excited about is, you know, first we are, as I described, like very interested in what the future of food systems and sustainable agriculture looks like in different right. contexts where we invest, particularly Latin Americans and Sub-Saharan Africa. Within that, land use, carbon markets is one piece of that. But we're also seeing just a really interesting um, upstart of different types of digital ag platforms that are incorporating or channeling regenerative services. So that might be, um, you know, a inputs trading marketplace in East Africa, but to bolster the value proposition of the inputs that they're channeling to farmers, uh, they're also providing insurance. Uh, they're also providing, you know, uh, precision agriculture advice on water usage. You're starting to see that these kind of resilience building or regenerative practices are starting to get more and more bundled into these agricultural platforms, which is really exciting because it creates opportunities on the platform level, as well as those individual technology services that can kind of plug in and distribute through them. Uh, so that's one area we're paying a lot of attention to. Um, and I think, you know, the epicenter of a lot of that really, the exciting ag tech around that, the climate tech around that is in India, um, you know, where our friends at Omnivore VC are doing there and the investments they're making are fantastic and super interesting. Uh, so I encourage people to go take a look at their portfolio learn from their vision. Uh, but we're seeing a lot of really interesting things in India and seeing some proxies and comparables in other markets as well. I think the second big area we're focused on is what's the future of inclusive financial technologies look like? Mm. Um, we've seen, obviously, fintech in emerging markets has been really on fire the last you know five years. Yeah. Um, the majority of capital flows towards fintech. That's where the valuations have been pumped up the most. Conversely, though, while there's been a while it's been incredible to see kind of the fintech stack being built in these markets, a lot of the capital has gone to you know unsecured lending, often unproductive. It's created a lot of regulatory concerns as well as uh, frankly just impact and like customer value population proposition concerns. So these kind of micro lending platforms where interesting you know somebody could take out a loan for a dollar, they don't pay it back, and then accrues a hundred to two hundred percent interest, and then they get a hit on the credit rating, which bars them from any other financing in Kenya. Right. Uh, so a simple mistake or a misunderstanding, whatever it is, can lead to you know pretty catastrophic risks to these individuals. And so I think we took a step back and said, you know, again, as an impact-oriented fund, um, and I think I would say a logical long-term investor, what really is going to make a meaningful difference for individuals' lives uh, in these markets? What's going to allow them to build assets to transfer risk to weather cash flow uncertainty? Mm -hmm. um, and those are the types of products and services we're going to invest in. So yeah, very excited about different platforms that let users with you know relatively small amounts of money to more thoughtfully curate their savings and their assets. Um, mm -hmm. So access different types of cash deposits, uh, secure their savings with a you know preferable interest rate. Mm. Uh, for those who have a little bit more education or can access education through the platform, maybe more uh, different types of uh, financial markets, overseas assets, whatever it is. So it's like, how do you match people to kind of asset and wealth building opportunities, uh, to education opportunities, and so forth? Yeah, I think a, another area of that we're excited about is certainly Web three, and so we've been exploring and made a few number of different investments in companies that 
with that paradigm are looking at how you know P2B payments or different cross-border payments can be cheaper, faster, more efficient via Web3. And so we're excited about that technology's role, but trying to steer clear of the speculative nature of that, given you know, kind of the risk profile of these clients. So those are two main areas we're like, I'd say really focused on and excited about 2023. And for the second one, I think in the US, we're starting to see, I mean, there's obviously been a massive wave of kind of fintech innovation and investment here the last five, 10 years too. And we're starting to see folks kind of try to do the climate action plus financial technology infrastructure play here in the US. You know, you see a decent amount of credit cards, banking, and stuff like that that's in some way connected to some form of climate action. Is that happening in other emerging markets too? Or do you think that's still another kind of wave or two away? Yeah, I mean, I think there are... We have seen a number of pitches, especially in Latin America, targeting you know middle class, upper middle class, upper class, where you have yeah like issuance of credit cards that allow you know say users to also offset their carbon footprint or you know part of the rewards will go to uh, reforestation, whatever it is. It's like some sort of you could say acquisition or retention strategy for those types of users where that's important to them. And I think in more developed markets, that's especially just the general feeling of a uh, big financing house passively using our money to contribute towards, you know, extractive industries and so forth. So I think it's an extension of that, but I still think the market is, is minuscule in terms of like assets under management and wealth, yeah. uh, as well as just like the base of users who can, you know, to be blunt, kind of afford or have the headspace to care about that. Yeah. And so I think it's there certainly, and there's a ton of activism and excitement, especially in Latin America around it. But I'd say that more of the trend is what are those products and services that, you know, really explicitly are reshaping how different systems work, whether it's food systems or financial systems or so forth, that deliver products and services that actually immediately increase the resilience of their users. And so, right. like, how do we smooth the cash flows of a small shop that has all these stresses or flood risk or whatever it is? Right. I think those are, like, more, like, top of mind, certainly for us and then for those users, right, who are our customers. Right. And everything layers in eventually too, you know, like if you're saving someone meaningful money on remittance payments that they're making, like that just gives them a lot more space and budget to go and think about other things. And if they're involved in any capacity with, you know, as we talked about earlier, land use or regenerative practices, then that's all in that boon to that too. Definitely. And I think that I can't remember if last year was the year of the Dow or, you know, whatever, (laughs) but, you know, I think we're probably realistically in like the decade of the Dow. There's going to be lots of like experimentation to figure out what that looks like. I mean, this is to me what's fascinating about like Web3 uh, space is, you know, there'll be booms and busts, totally. um, of course, and they're just, the swings are wild. However, from an emerging markets perspective, you can pretty easily see the utility of some of these things, right? And so if you just kind of look at the user base, for stable coins and what's that meant in particular context where there's hyperinflation and how money is moving or in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, what Bitmama, Ajara and others have proven is that, you know, transacting using stable coins um, and other cryptocurrencies uh, for cross-border payments for SMEs has been going like crazy. You can kind of see like people are using this technology maybe quietly despite the bust, right? And people are yeah. building upon it. And, you know, typically those fintechs that are not are more Web2 fintechs are starting to now more meaningfully on the back end integrate Web3. I guess what this brings me to on the DAO side is that I think what we'll start to see more and whether it's Web3 or not is like what are the more inclusive governance structures or stakeholder models that give more voice and ownership to those 
users or farmers or whoever is part of that system. I think there is more of a push, especially in a place like Latin America, where there's a long history of activism on this, right, and cooperative culture um, or cooperatives uh, existing. I think we're going to see more of that. And Web3 and the DAO structure, like, inherently does that. And we're, there's a lot of really interesting experiments around that. So, like, you know, Goldfinch, one of our portfolio companies, I'm amazed when I'll, like, go out to Senegal or something and, you know, I'll meet people who are like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm an underwriter at Goldfinch or I'm contributing money to Goldfinch to give loans to other people in Africa, right? Yeah. Uh, or similarly, there's an organization called Tekka, which is trying to stand up a DAO, which effectively would be co-owned by third-party investors as well as founders who are founding blue carbon startups across Africa. Cool. So how could you flip the entire paradigm of how capital and values accrued when founders participate in that system more equitably, but then also give some diversification to, you know, investors who put money into it and, and stimulate the next round of startups that are in pretty hard places. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of experimentation. I think it's going to be super exciting over the next decade to see how that plays out. Love it. And I think that ties into, you know, what we're, you were introducing earlier, the concept of kind of the grant making that you all are starting to do, which is an interesting kind of novel technique to try and test ideas and seed new markets. So I'm sure that some of them have kind of already come up in conversation, but what are some of the ideas that you're excited to give some grants to and, and see if they bear fruit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, gosh, I mean, this <laughs> is one of the most ex- interesting parts of Mercy Core Ventures. So our piloting vehicle uh, was started about three years ago. And again, the intention is to give grants of around 25K to 300K, I believe is kind of the framework we're working in. Nice. So just... Yeah, burst through the hype bubble. Originally, it was all blockchain and blockchain derivative technologies where there's no shortage of hype. And the intention was to say, well, we're all talking about, you know, for instance, um, one of our first pilots, we're all talking about how smart contracts can make insurance payouts faster and cheaper and more efficient because there's so many parties who have to agree on a payout. Sure. But yeah. there's not many, you know, at that point, real world use cases. So, that was one of our original pilots working with Acre Africa, Etherisk. Yeah, and basically that. How do we integrate smart contracts in the back end to facilitate and automate as much as possible the payout trigger and the payout process to farmers? Nice. And I don't have the the data offhand. I can I can refer people to our <laughs> everything's available on our website, whisperventuresbc uh, for kind of the detailed notes and impact report. But there was a, a massive reduction in the payout time. I think from around 30 to 60 days down to, I think, 48 hours. So That's huge. It's huge. Yeah. And then the cost, I think, was, I'm not going to speculate, but the cost savings to the different participants, particularly Acre Africa, the insurer, uh, were massive. It was a no-brainer. Um, so for them, it was like a demonstration that, well, this should be a part of all of our insurance products immediately because you know the cost to implement this you know, doesn't need to be subsidized. It's, there's a commercial rationale for it. Right. So that was one of them. We're, we're about to launch one and probably, well, by the time this probably goes to release, we'll have more release on it. Uh, but we're very excited to launch a pilot with uh, Forest Carbon in Indonesia, uh, which is looking at um, essentially what are the different types of metadata and transparency that we can provide in their carbon projects, which all to date have been Vera certified. So very highest quality, like a blue chip project developer. Um, essentially what they can produce far more metadata than I think is kind of analyzed and valued under the current system uh, with Vera, uh, which is fair enough. And so the idea is like, how can we essentially demonstrate that in real time, provide full transparency where money's going to communities and so forth. And does that really um, lead to them being able to sell at a premium price or have the opportunity to enter new markets that are outside of those registries potentially. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of testing out the core hypothesis there. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what types of you know buyers might be interested in that too that wouldn't necessarily have been interested before. 
if it unlocks anyone new. For sure, exactly. And I think that's, you know, one experiment we're doing there because you have kind of on the spectrum of like entirely new methodology, Web3 native carbon asset. Um, You know, this is a carbon project developer with a long history that's, you know, selling to some of the top buyers of carbon in the world. This is a very certified project for the last five years. So it's, it's kind of like the least risky from an execution and perception mindset. It's really like, how do we add additional data layers? And, but we're going to want to make, we're going to want to do pilots, you know, more on the other risk side too. So we're excited to kind of explore that and, you know, see exactly where the market takes us. Um, maybe what fits best for different types of land stewards, project developers, what works best for different types of buyers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the intention of the pilots, right? I mean, we'll, we'll make investments in some of these companies potentially, yeah. but our intention is, you know, we would like to make a meaningful dent in some big, hairy systemic issues. We can't do that alone, but if we have a few different tools to do that, uh, we can hopefully move things along and you know, precipitate some partnerships or growth or at least some new thinking that will, yeah, that will actually you know, move the bar. Yeah, and I mean, grant funding, especially when it actually processes pretty quickly, is you know such a good way to do that, especially in a capital raising environment where I'm not sure what it's like in emerging markets, but it's definitely not quite as a uh, fast and furious as it was 18 months to 12 months ago in the US. So it becomes all the more important. Yeah, I have to give a uh, tip of the cat to my colleague, Ken, who, who manages our piloting vehicle. I think he does, as a recovering entrepreneur as well, he does a great <laughs> job, I think, of just like, what's the right fit process to really co-design these opportunities with companies that doesn't derail their operations or take them in the wrong direction, uh, but is valuable to their work. And so I think the best case for us is a pilot that, you know, it's in a company that really we think has potentially transformative tech or model. And this is a great opportunity for them to, you know, essentially have a bit of money, leverage our resources and support, or maybe, you know, other partners they can work with uh, to demonstrate that um, and yeah. learn from it. And, and, you know, best case scenario that helps them unlock investment or whatever it is. So we have another pilot we just launched uh, looking at like how Web3 can facilitate uh, decentralized clean water access in India. Um, wow. So how yeah. could a Web3 type of backend essentially incentivize uh, sustainable, clean uh, water uh, delivery. So it's pretty fascinating. I mean, like a DAO structure to do that. It's interesting. I, I did a lot of work in Cambodia and water a long time ago, decentralized systems. Sure. I mean, it's something that happens innately in these emerging markets, but investing in it and, and growing it is really challenging. So if this structure works and you know it shows that there's a different way to incentivize the right type of behavior, but also help commercially these distributed water solutions providers uh, to scale, then you kind of solve a few problems at once. So it's one of the pilots we're doing and with Atlantis down, I believe we'll start getting some results from that in the coming coming weeks and months. I'm also interested at this point, because we've talked about companies in so many different countries, I'm kind of interested to zoom out back to that original question I gestured toward at the beginning of the call. You know, I'm sure that there's two ways to answer this question. It's like you could go into all the things that are different across different countries when you're looking at different companies or some of the things that are the same. But for folks like myself that mostly swim in US and EU kind of climate tech waters, what are some things that stand out to you after a decade plus of doing this work of where the differences and the similarities are? Yeah, it's a big one. But I mean, I spent my entire career in emerging markets. Um, yeah. So I've been around folks who are pretty um, flippant about Capital, Silicon Valley, entrepreneurs, whatever, you know, like there's always a perception that folks are flying in from X place and kind of 
copying whatever model and seeing if it works in an emerging market. Sure. And that's true. I mean, you know, of course, you can't discount that that definitely does happen. And some of those entrepreneurs or you know, people raise a ton of money. Some investors put money in stuff that shouldn't really have money. But I, I kind of look at more of the positive aspects of it where I've just come across so many incredible entrepreneurs from US, EU, you know, they might be from Africa, Latin America themselves, but they've been educated or gone up to Google or Climate Corp, whatever it is. Like, it's that kind of integrator between these markets, wherever the entrepreneur comes from, but they're kind of taking the best of uh, Silicon Valley, the best of, you know, some of these amazing advances in like food systems tech you'll see in the Netherlands or whatever it is, and translating that into emerging markets. And so a lot of the most exciting companies I feel like have had that interplay where you just have that talent who's, you know, come up in those places, but also have that mindset and values and visions of like, how do we actually, you know, make this work for, you know, the people I care about or the vision I have in this particular country or context right. or subregion. And so that's been very heartening. I mean, the paybook on product development, I think is, is not that different between these places, right? I mean, obviously creating a Facebook clone in the U.S. and how you go about that is very different than um, a financial services startup in like sure. Cameroon. But, but generally <laughs> speaking, the acumen you have around like creating customer feedback loops, uh, data loops with your customers and how you respond to that, how you make critical decisions, how you look at the economics, all that's kind of the same. And I, again, I think the talent that comes that can translate that and draw from it, yeah, see kind of the best in all these different worlds. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that fully answered question, but I feel like the that that's where it's like, how do we take what Climate Corp, for instance, built for a U.S. market, mostly large farmers, and translate that to like East Africa? That's like what Apollo Agriculture is doing, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, Eli comes from Climate Corp. You know, similarly, how do we take what's working in insurance markets and translate that to really hard context in West Africa? Well, okay, we're going to have to like, understand how reinsurance works. I just, the people who are grappling with that, trying to learn from the best of what's scaled and then translating, changing it, hustling, that, that's where I think the magic kind of is. Conversely, I mean, I think there's just so many amazing founders in these markets that, I mean, we talk about kind of DEI challenges and, and, and financing challenges in the US where I can't remember what percent of capital is sucked up by mostly Silicon Valley then a little bit New York and Boston. Right. And then, you know, the composition of those founders it's a similar problem playing out in most of the markets we work in, right? And so there's so many incredible entrepreneurs uh, that simply just don't get on the radar of a lot of funds, especially if they're not locally based or locally managed. Right. And so I think that there's, and there's just less capital available, frankly speaking, right? And different types of capital needed. And so I think that's a huge difference is that a lot of what we've exported in terms of like capital for emerging markets is the Silicon Valley, you know, VC, uh, but there's not too many entrepreneurs that can follow that playbook. There's not too many commercial opportunities that really should follow that playbook, right? They're not going to generate 100, 200x returns. Um, and so it's just not, there's not enough capital available and we don't have the plurality of instruments we need to serve the, the number of entrepreneurs that we should be serving. And so I think there's a key difference there. And I think that's definitely changed over the last you know, eight years I've been with Mercy Corps. Uh, but it still doesn't really rise to the moment, particularly in the climate space. We just need different types of capital to meet different points in the problem. And I think last thing I'll say about to that question is, I mean, this is a much deeper discussion, but I think that like, I think the high level, I think is like when we look at some of the advances in, you know, just amazing ag tech in the US or EU or Israel, which is a hotspot for that. It's really designed for just large scale commercial farm. Right. Makes sense. This is the user persona of a small farmer or even a medium farmer in, say, Latin America. And compared to Africa, they're all 
just wildly different. And so I think that's where there's like a pretty big dissonance, right? Like the technology is there, but how you develop the economics to serve it, the data granularity you need versus what you have, like all of that has to be kind of fundamentally different. Um, so I think that's the crux and the challenge that, you know, entrepreneurs who are building for the emerging markets really have to step up to while kind of looking at, wow, look at what some of these ag tech, like what the Indigo can do in the U.S. Yeah. How do we translate that in, in a meaningful way where the economics work? Yeah. And last point, you could, you know, cut this out if you want to. <laughs> but one thing that's always on my mind is, like, sometimes when we look at uh, international development, capital um, deployment in emerging markets, we almost export this, like, very, I don't know, and ran perspective of capital where, you know, the government can't provide services in a lot of these economies, right? I mean, it's just super challenging. They don't get much tax revenue and there's, yeah, there's just a billion challenges, right? But there's kind of this perspective that, well, somehow we can set up these like non-subsidized private models that are fueled by venture capital to deliver health services or to, you know, provide ag insurance and so forth. And, yeah, maybe you can, but when we take a step back and look at the U.S., it's like agriculture insurance in the U.S. is absolutely public funded, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, even our food our food system has like so much government intervention. So I think sometimes when we're analyzing investments, we really have to be honest with ourselves. Like, is this really something that deserves venture capital or is it really a public failure and needs a slightly different perspective? And that's not to say we shouldn't be encouraging entrepreneurship, but I think we have to be a little bit more honest about, you know, where private capital really should be versus the governments and what are the other mechanisms to kind of bridge that gap. Yeah. And it's certainly a very important element of prioritization in that too. One thing that, you know, all of what you noted is valuable. And one thing I'm also curious about on the heels of it is to what extent, and you'll know this more intimately than me too, but over the next 10 years, I wonder if there's opportunities to also like reverse the flow of, you know, where interesting models are being exported to. Because as you noted, like sometimes interesting decentralized systems just pop up in emerging markets more naturally because there is no centralized water treatment plant that manages like 80% of wastewater treatment in a city or something like that. So yeah, I mean, that's just something that, you know, as I continue to follow your work and as we keep in touch, I'll be keen to pick your brain about in the future. Yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to give a little bit more thought to that, but there's definitely some things where I think everybody had hypotheses like, wow, if M-Pesa can work in Kenya, why don't we have that in the U.S., you know? Right. Um, and there, that's a whole longer discussion, but you know, there's, I would definitely say, like, I think the Web3 space is starting to and will get its toehold really in emerging markets potentially more in some ways, uh, mm-hmm. just because the issues that it solves and then the desire for more shared ownership just really resonates with a lot of those users. And it's not to say all of Web3, but I think certain components of it, there'll be a leapfrog effect there. Um, and certainly on like the stable coins usage, it, it solves a much bigger problem for emerging markets than it does, I think, for a lot of. Uh, users in, in uh, more developed markets. But yeah, that's a good one. I think it's like something that will be interesting to track. Uh, parametric insurance is another one that I've been, one of our companies does parametric flood uh, insurance and then flood, um, real-time flood observation. Nice. And they started out exclusively in Africa, India, Indonesia, but they're getting uh, some of their biggest commercial traction uh, right here, or not right here, sorry, <laughs> right up there in the southeast of the U.S. Uh, with hurricanes. So yeah, again, parametric insurance, yeah, usually it's more of a fit for emerging markets where you can't afford to do post-disaster assessments and, you know, just the economics would not work given the ability to pay. Uh, But increasingly, I think more developed countries are saying parametric insurance actually is a product that uh, might make more sense for different types of risk transfer. Um, So it's interesting to see something that was really kind of, I feel like, 
the hotbed of design is in emerging markets. But now with all the climate stresses and shocks in more developed markets, we're going to see probably more parametric products being launched there. Yeah, that's a good example. What's the name of that firm, by the way? They were originally called Cloud to Street, and they just oh, yeah. rebranded like two days ago to Floodbase. I was going to say, yeah, it sounds familiar. And their uh, director of technology, Subit, was on the podcast 10 episodes ago or something like that. So, yeah, good stuff. I guess last major question for me, and then we can kind of talk about ways for folks to engage and, and keep track of your work. But, you know, I'm just curious for everything outside of all of the we've talked about in terms of emerging markets and what is or isn't venture backable, you know, what's one other thing that you're curious about in tracking in climate in 2023? It doesn't have to be within Mercy Corps' purview at all. Yeah, yeah. It's always hard to limit to just one. Um, I'm really Three's fine too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited by what Renault Star is doing in terms of, you know, trying to bring more independent trust uh, to the carbon markets space. And this the way that they are doing so by being pretty radically transparent about how their mechanism for assessing carbon projects works compared to others that are more in black box. So I think it's this kind of like, I don't think they would agree with this, but this kind of ratings body, if you will, like a Moody's for the carbon markets Mm. needs to exist, um, certainly. For sure. And I think there's different ways of going about it. And what Renault Star is doing is is kind of exciting to me. I think just the way they pursue the values that they have and how you build confidence in yourselves as that essentially ratings agency, I think is a unique strategy. So that's pretty exciting to me. Right on. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I think second, I'm really acutely interested in alternative land use models that essentially allow somebody to keep their land asset, but then lease it out for another activity. Um, and in the U.S. and places, this is because we have a great property rights system and it's a functioning free market effectively. You'll see this with solar and all sorts of things, right? I mean, a, a landowner has all sorts of information to determine how they want to extract value or accrue value from the land. But in emerging markets, it's not the case. And so I've been really interested in different types of models that say, you know, instead of saying a farmer, here's what you can plant, et cetera, that farmer can choose to exit farming, but retain the land asset and aggregate that with other farms and, you know, somebody else manages their production so they can make passive income, you know, accrue the value of the land over time and so forth. Nice. Uh, so companies like Cinch, which is in our portfolio, but then others we're looking at that, yeah, essentially just give more, like take away that information asymmetry and kind of give more agency uh, to landowners. Final area I'm pretty interested in is like, just supply chain transparency. Mm. Um, like what are the future of supply chains look like for food and other types of commodities? I think that, yeah, there's just going to be a massive shift for to gain commercial advantage, but also limit your downside kind of regulatory risk. Yeah. Given all the impending regulations in the EU around like no deforestation and supply chain, like you're proven guilty or you're guilty until proven <laughs> innocent, which is going to flip everything on its head. Yeah. I think that's going to change that's going to create so many tailwinds for software providers and other companies that can, you know, really demonstrate that um, and allow you to connect with farmers or show that you're, you're doing the right thing. And I think we'll increasingly see that. Right. And likewise, in, in the U.S., where there's at least for tax credit purposes going to be a focus on that, too, is like how much of this, you know, of the materials for X product are being produced domestically. Exactly. And I mean, there's so many restrictions on even where like the DFC and other DFIs can spend their money because of lack of traceability and where some of these materials come from. So so that's one area where, you know, I'm glad for a little bit of the political courage, but it's also kind of following consumer demand to some degree and a little bit of, at least in the U.S., um, what do you call it, nationalism around the supply chain. But regardless, <laughs> it's going to push uh, good behavior and I think provide a nudge 
to, especially in emerging markets, some of these companies have been trying to build more inclusive and sustainable supply chains, but been in a commercial disadvantage. Now it kind of puts them on at least equal footing, if not in a more prime spot to actually take advantage of that, hopefully. Yeah, nice. Great note to finish on. Um, in terms of keeping up with you and your work and the work that Mercy Core Ventures does, where should folks follow along? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Tim Rand, T-I-M-R-A-N-N. Also, you can find our website at uh, mercycoreventures.vc. Um, yeah, those are the two best places. On mercycoreventures.vc, uh, we kind of publish all of our insights from our piloting work, as well as um, you know, we're constantly doing different extended research pieces on, say, InsureTech or SME resilience in emerging markets. Uh, we're about to launch our annual impact report, uh, which goes through a lot of our kind of fails, lessons learned, portfolio <laughs> companies, voices of entrepreneurs. So that's the best place to find out pretty much everything you need to. And then if you're looking to pitch, yeah, feel free to DM me on Twitter or, yeah, you can reach out via our website. We have a portal kind of for, for folks to send over the deck. And if you have anybody interested to collaborate, uh, anybody interested to, like, you know, just especially in the piloting front, just, like, bounce around ideas. We're always super eager. Um, sorry, last thing I'll mention is we're going to launch our Crypto for Good Fund proposal window, and that's on the piloting fund. That will be launched in mid-February to late February. Sweet. And yeah, that'll be grants available of, correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, we'll see <laughs> 25 <laughs> to 300K, I think an average of 100K to um, yeah, organizations that are going to test out different uh, types of use cases in blockchain, blockchain derivative technology. So look for that on our website. We'll be doing a formal call very soon. Right on. Love it. Thanks so much for joining, Tim. I look forward to, uh, I got to make an excuse to get out to some of these cool places that you get to go at some point. So keep me in the loop on uh, where you're headed next. Yeah. And anytime we'll, we'll show you around for sure. And yeah, thanks for having me. It was really, really fun. To, <laughs> really fun to chat. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.